Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. This roundtable was facilitated by community moderator Corey Taylor, and its topic of discussion was neurodiversity-affirming practices. The participants were autistic self-advocates Thomas Island, Brian Middleton, Andrew Bennett, Corbin Havener, and Robert Schmoos and community members Rosetta Walker, Danielle Terrell, and TJ Laram. In today's conversation, they discuss what affirming means, harms of being forced to mask, best practices across disciplines, client dignity, autonomy, assent, and how to identify an individual's values. In this episode, discover what's possible when the person is at the center. To learn more about the participants, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Roundtable discussions like the one you'll hear today are open exclusively for members of our online Global Autism community. We select a different theme each month, and our moderators monitor posts daily to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. My name is Corey. I'm currently working with the Global Autism Project as their Skillcore Associate. And I've been helping Rachel kind of in the background doing community moderator stuff. And this is going to be my first time facilitating a roundtable, and I'm very excited I'm TJ Larum, BCBA, LBA, music educator, and notorious stubborn do gooder. Live in Memphis, Tennessee from Minnesota, and I am currently coming to you live from Massachusetts. Awesome. Thank you, TJ. Okay. All right. My name is Corbin Havener in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently working union manufacturing yep. with substitute teaching in a transition to teaching program. While I um, transition to that, I am a scheduled skill corps traveler in this October to Kenya. So excited to have you, Corbin. My name is Robert Schmoos. I am a autistic self-advocate and a licensed therapist. I've spoken on workshops regarding autism self-advocacy. I've done many works in gar- regarded written many articles on autism and topics related to autism advocacy. I've spoken on Rachel's podcast before, and I've been on a few roundtables, the Global Autism Project, and I hope to one day do a skill core, take part in a skill core. Amazing. Thank you. My name is Tom Island. I'm based in Santa Clarita, California, just north of Los Angeles, and I own Come to Life Coaching, which is based on the title of my award-winning best-selling book, Come to Life, Your Guide to Self-Discovery. It's my philosophy that life doesn't come to you. It's up to you to come to life. And I just wrote a second book, Health First, called My Glass is Full. Stories oh, nice. Health First. Oh, thank you. Looking forward to speaking with all of you today. Amazing. Thank you so much. I'm Rosetta Walker, Queen of Inspiration, owner of Walker Ricks Production, best-selling author of Mission Unstoppable. I'm also a life coach, spiritual counselor, and autism activist. I'm glad to be here today and looking forward to having a wonderful roundtable meeting. Thank you for having me. Thank you so Pleasure much. Pleasure to meet you. <laughs> I'm Andrew Bennett. I'm autistic self-advocate, a board-certified assistant behavior analyst and skill core alum from Houston, Texas. I currently work at Lee College in Houston, working with adults with neurodivergent conditions, mostly autism, sometimes ADHD, and I help them to achieve their goals in college and in life. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. 
So the topic is this month, neurodiversity affirming practices, not only in ABA, but in a variety of fields. So whether it's music therapy or speech or occupational therapy or special education, what it means to have neurodiversity affirming practices. And so to start, we kind of just want to see what affirming means to you whether it's in as a personally what affirming means or in the practice that you are working with autistic individuals. And feel free to unmute and let us know what you think. And if anything resonates with what someone says, feel free to let them know and jump in. Well, I'll break the ice here and say uh, I'm on the autism spectrum myself. I didn't mention that in my introduction. But one thing that has definitely been a struggle for me over the years, and I think my peers can relate to this, is employment. Neurodiversity affirming practices in employment, both in the hiring and retention stages, both making sure that we are heard or at least given the opportunity to present ourselves. And once we show we are qualified for the position, that we be able to stay in a job that is gainful and productive and meaningful to us, and that our voices matter, particularly when it comes to decisions made at the top. And I really want to encourage leadership amongst my peers in their workplaces as well. So that's my first two cents on neurodiversity affirming practices in employment. Yeah, I think uh, affirming means you're able to live as who you are and it's not seen as necessary to change that basic core part. There's a lot of identities that could be affirmed, you know, whether uh, neurological, racial, ethnic, sexual orientation, they all lead to better outcomes if those identities are able to be affirmed. Go ahead, Andrew. To piggyback off uh, Corbin, um, I think anytime that we are affirming the truth of someone's identity, we are helping them to become more fully realized versions of themselves. The essential part of that is the I define affirming a couple of different ways, one of them being the philosophical point of view on it, which is affirming is to declare something as truth and to promote it and to cultivate it. And that can be in the way that we treat somebody or the way that we validate a person's identity or sense of self. In order to do that in a way that's beneficial to the individual, we have to know that that's who they are and we can base that particularly with some of the identities that you've mentioned, we can base that on certain facts that we can see and observe and measure, ideally. Now, for autism, the idea of the neurodiversity movement is predicated on the concept that neurodiversity is a real and objective thing, and autism being one of those things. We can look at that and see that it is based in the brain or in old neurotype. It's also manifest in behavior, but it's not as objective as what we see and can measure, and now we'll understand a little bit more about within ourselves. So to be able to affirm that, we can look at that and then see and encourage the development of a sense of self that highlights those qualities that make the autistic individual who they are, and so that they can live a functioning life. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, that was pretty cohesive in bringing kind of all of that together for us. We have a few people just joining right now, and I quickly want to make sure that we introduce them and then let them know kind of where we're at. So Danielle, quickly just introduce yourself and background, and then um, Brian, you can follow Danielle. I'm Danielle Terrell. I am a Skillport alum, and I also work with transition age young adults on the autism spectrum. I do service coordination and case management. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, I'm uh, Brian Middleton. I am a BCBA, autistic, ADHD dad. (laughs) And uh, some people know me as the bearded behaviorist, which is a social media profile that I created a few years back. And I guess I'm making waves. (laughs) Well, welcome. Right now, we're kind of just talking about what affirming means to you kind of in broad strokes with the umbrella of it being neurodiversity affirming practices for the roundtable. So if either of you have um, kind of just what affirming means to you and want to jump in or if we want to let anyone else go for right now. I think when it comes to neurodiversity affirming, one thing that we have to definitely keep in mind is, you know, making sure that, you know, our voice is being heard and that, you know, our voice is being heard in regards to 
the aspects of the issue. Like I want to piggyback on what was said about employment. That's a big one. And, you know, also not only with employment, but what can help neurodiverse individuals be employed? Like what can help us stay on the job? Like what can help us to be successful in that? Not only with that, but also with relationships. Like what is something that we can, that can help us socially without having us mask? Because mm-hmm. I know masking is a big issue. I know personally, that's been something that's affected me being forced to mask, being forced to not be myself and how to not have that fear. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. To piggyback off of what Robert was saying, like, I think the operative term there is forced to mask because like masking can be a choice. It can be something that you choose to do because you're not familiar with the person and you don't, you're not comfortable enough to open yourself up. But the issue is, is not masking itself so much as we're forced to because we have no choice because the environment does that to us i'm sure it's true for other forms of protecting yourself where you're in a hostile environment and you 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 have to versus wanting to because i i can choose to unmask any point in time i want but then i have to deal with when i truly 100% unmask do i have to worry about whether or not my job is at stake, whether or not I'm going to be discriminated against by an EMT or a police officer. And it, it just compounds even more when you are when you have multiple intersections. It's not a choice when the environment is so coercive that you have to, to protect yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly true because, you know, we have so many things come, coming at once. Like, all right, well, how do I act in this situation? What do I do in this situation? And then we're given all these expectations, which change every day. That's where the big anxiety comes from. The big struggle comes from is, as you said, sir, being forced to mask. And it's really down to the point where it actually affects us in so many ways. That's why there's so many, like you hear stories of neurodiverse individuals being neurodivergence, having like anxiety attacks due to such, impact attacks due to this forced masking. Yeah, that's a really great like way to differentiate whether it's forced and chosen. And kind of thinking about that, does anyone have any examples of like good practice where they felt like that wasn't happening and it was a choice? And then we can move into like maybe some not so great practices that we've experienced, but I'd love to start just talking about what have you seen that's been a positive practice that has let you feel comfortable Speaking from experience, when I started an internship at the Walt Disney Company in their property tax department, I was in a team of six interns. And about two weeks into the internship, the manager met with each intern individually and privately to ask how things are going. Do you understand what's going on here? Do you need any help? And that was the time where I actually took the opportunity to disclose, self-disclose. I have autism. I'm struggling with this, this, and this. I would like accommodations to the effect of instructions in writing, bear with me if I ask the same question multiple times, etc. And my manager actually respected my decision in that moment to do that. And I went on to stay with that organization for three years, one of them as a lead intern. So I got promoted within the department because I chose to say what I needed to say and know what help I needed. So I would say to summarize as far as best practices, examples, that managers need to be open to these discussions. And really respect the courage it takes to say what needs to be said and what kind of help you need that won't break the bank. Yeah. Is there something that he did that made you feel comfortable enough to be honest besides just asking? Besides, uh, and it was a woman, but being uh, just open to that discussion and being interested in the feedback of the interns, because we have a huge workload to get through about 500 tax returns in four months amongst the six of us. So everyone had to be on the same page and Everyone had to be organized and communicating with each other. So this information, having it be able to be known and that I felt comfortable with this person to do that, I think made a world of a difference. Amazing. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for examples of good practice and big proponent of person-centered planning, treating, what have you. And then also, um, and to Brian, I mentioned in the, the chat there, something that I thought, Haba, that I thought was really great was community-informed assessment. But I think it all boils down to asking and talking to the individuals that are affected by the services, treatment, therapy, whatever it may be, 
making sure that again, we're, we're talking to the individual. I think so often, um, I mean, personally, I find myself in pediatric practice and uh, a lot of it is moving more towards like, what do you think speaking in third person, but I'll always be using a lot of referring to the individual. How do you feel about this? What do you want to do? And really just leaning into that. And then, you know, the tough part is, um, I was mentioned to coercion, where I think we do live in a very punitive, coercive society where it's like they need to act a certain way, someone needs to act this way. And again, it's just a lot of third person referencing. And I don't think that that in and of itself, just as like a, a language is where we might be falling short. So it's always you. What would you like to do? How would you like to see this work? What is important to you? What's valuable to you? Yeah, it's more difficult, I think, in, you know, in your profession and kind of the field I've worked in when you are, you know, working with kids who are maybe three or four years old and like, how do you establish autonomy at that age? And I think that's also an important topic that we can touch on later. Is there anyone else that wants to talk about a good example yet, Brian? I see your hand up. So a big factor in assessing, especially when we're talking about our peers who are non-speaking is seeking to identify values. And as a behavior analyst working for a company that focuses on ascent-based enhanced choice model, that approach, and also working with like the types of clients that typically other people will refuse or you know, say that's outside their scope. We were working with a couple siblings, actually, adults. I love to call them yin and yang because they're polar opposites. They're twins, but opposite of each other. And Yang was always interested and engaged and being a part of it while Yang was always struggling. And the challenge was that because both of them are mostly mute, non-speaking, like a few small words, and because one of the problem behaviors or problem behavior, sorry, target behavior, behavior of concern that kept coming up was that when one of them would get into the stress, they would pull their G-tube out. And if it gets pulled out longer than a certain period of time, then that could be really bad. And so that's very concerning and dangerous. And the one who was struggling was Yang. And the thing is, is that Yang would go into these target behaviors when they hit frustration, like they kept on trying over and over and over again and failing. But they'd also get fr- uh, hit those target behaviors whenever someone would try to help them. And it was when we stepped back and asked the question, what are their values? What matters to them? that we realized the other side of I don't like being helped is being a part of the community, being a helper. And so it was when we listened, like we listened by observing the behaviors, by telling us what Yang wanted, and they showed us that all we had to do was listen long enough to find out what matters to them. And then it was a total shift in just everything and the quality of life and the engagement in learning Yang was, they were choosing to do hard things. They were choosing to, not us asking them to. They were saying, I'm interested in doing this by their actions, by them going towards the thing. And it really comes back to, are we being listened to? Like everybody knows that if you listen to a person, any person with respect, and you treat them with the dignity that is due to them for being a person, period, that amazing things happen. Yes. Just all of that. Yes. (laughs) I love that. Just being able to listen and not, if you aren't able to communicate, if that doesn't mean you can't be a proactive listener to see what their needs are. And that, I love that. Thank you. Does anyone else have any uh, examples they'd like to share of some best practices that they've experienced or that they've seen? I just, if you don't mind me saying, I would have to also say just the to piggyback on listening, because that is absolutely true. You know, if we give like neurodivergence a platform to for them to be heard and to actually listen to them, I honestly feel that that would be something that's vital, like making sure that they their voices are heard. It's just affirming that it is important to listen. It kind of goes into like the next topic that I was going to bring up anyways, which is kind of client dignity. And in no matter whatever field you're working in, what does client dignity and how does that relate to kind of those neurodiverse affirming practices? And what are ways to look at those practices to ensure that you are providing that sort of dignity? As far as dignity goes and speaking as a person on the autism spectrum, I would I believe that each and every one of us is capable of living the life of our choice. And at some point or another, we have to look at the, our allies, parents, 
caregivers, therapists, they may have an idea of what kind of life they want for us, but whether or not those two align is the big question. And if there's differences, we need to be open to those and ultimately see whether or not the person is happy and at least on a path to happiness. And you may have to filter out some haters in the process. I just want to bring up a phrase, which is called a human right. A human right is communication. That means not overly prioritizing verbal speech and recognizing it as the only way. There's, you know, lots of other ways to communicate. So from my understanding that um, for uh, non-speaking peers, the inability to speak verbally is actually a motor deficiency and not a mental deficiency. It has no indication of mental capability. It's a motor deficiency. But what ends up happening is since so many people are unaware, a lot of times they can get into school and then they're treated like they're no further along intellectually than first grade. And that's because they're not meeting them, like they have no system meeting them to the point where they can have an assumed mental capability that they actually have. I mean, we've had so many self-advocates, including, let's see, Elizabeth, uh, what's her last name? Elizabeth, I don't know, Elizabeth Gillette from Rollins College, Jordan Zimmerman, just so many of them. When it comes down to just giving them the communication that they need to have access to, that alone opens the door, whether or not they, they speak verbally. That's a really great point, Corbin. Thank you. Yes, communication also makes you feel like you're part of the community. And when you're outside of that, I think there's definitely some disconnect. Go ahead, Andrew. I see your hands up. Okay. A couple of points related to specific topics under the dignity umbrella. One of them being ensuring that people are seen for who they are and not erased or not seen or be treated as if their differences don't exist. Yes. Now, when somebody says, I don't see autism or I don't see this or I don't see your difference, it's one on one hand, it's wrong. But on the other, there's two different reasons why somebody might be doing that. One is either trying to be fair and equitable to everyone. Good intention, number one. Two, maybe there's a good intention of I don't really know or I'm uncomfortable with the way that somebody is different and I don't want to mess it up. It's probably it's a well-intentioned step into one's own ignorance and inability to go any further. It's not where we want to be, but at least the intention is in the right place. We don't want to be either, I don't see autism, or I see autism and that's it. People think that's a dichotomy, but that's not right. It should be, I see you including the autism. And that should mean that not only are we seeing the ways that somebody is different, but we're also seeing them as a whole person. So it's, you get both the identity first and the person first approaches somewhat blended into one. This came from a conversation I had with a friend where she said that I don't treat you any differently because you're autistic. And it's like, okay, you don't treat me any less because I'm autistic. You treat me differently than you would treat a neurotypical in accordance with the ways that I am different. And nothing more. You treat me any different in any other way, then you're missing something. You're not doing that. I don't think that you're doing that because you're genuinely a good person and you're trying to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. So that's where we need to be is that middle ground between seeing somebody in their totality, but not seeing their differences as a reason to exclude. Two, the concept of autonomy, which Kapori, you've covered and I think the other behavior analysts in the room, but really everybody can comment on this in a clinical practice, is autonomy in a broad macro sense just means the ability to make one's own choices and determine one's own, the way that one's own life works to the extent that we can. And that last phrase is important. Okay, so autonomy could be, I have the ability to make choices. I have the ability to communicate. I have the right to decide what I do with my life. So in one common case, you could say bodily autonomy within a clinical setting, and let's say it intersects with restraint. So, okay, if we're in a clinical setting and we have a a child or really anybody who wants to, let's say, stem, we should let them do that. 
as long as that is not hurting somebody else. They should have the freedom to do what they want with their body, with their life. But there is, has to be a caveat there. Because as soon as you put your hands on somebody to block them from hitting somebody else, harming them, you've just said that there's another factor that you have to consider. And that's other people's right to life, to safety, to property, etc. That is as far as you take that. As soon as you are putting a restraint on somebody's autonomy that is not necessary to uphold a higher right than that person's autonomy, in that specific scenario, you're doing them wrong. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. if restraint is to be used, perhaps, then it's only to protect other people's rights to being safe. And as soon as that is no longer necessary, you have to withdraw that. And you have to walk that balance. Now, I've worked in a clinical setting where we've had an older client who was more verbal and understood a lot more of what was happening. So we would have to explain, if we are putting you in this occluded room with the door shut, we are not doing that to restrict you. We are not doing that to hurt you. It's only when you are aggressive and hitting people or destroying things that we need to do this. As soon as you are safe, we will stop. Now, when you get to that point where that is your daily practice, you're respecting their autonomy, but also ensuring that everyone else's rights are protected and you're giving them dignity. And that might be the neurodiversity affirming piece of that also is that maybe these are behaviors that in some degree are sourced from the individual's diagnosis. So you may have to explain, we're not trying to take away your freedom to be who you are. This is just another need. And maybe if somebody is stimming or verbally stimming in a quiet room, We give them something else that they can do that doesn't bother other people and still respect their autonomy. I see that there are some hands raised. I'll pass this off to. Yeah, I have a couple of things I'd like to come back to, but Robert, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Just to also, I want to point out is worth like understanding your worth as a, as something for the community, like knowing that they are worthy of their goals or worthy of their love, that they're worthy of of being able to have choices, you're worth it. Like, know that you have these, that you've, that you're listening and we know that you are, we want you to have choices. Like what you want in life? What do you want to obtain? What type of goal do you have? And you, you're able to have these choices because you're worth it. In the past, it's always been seen as, oh, you're up. Oh, it's kind of like, like you have to do it this way because such and such. When in reality, we're not looking at the worth of the person. Yeah, I like that concept. How do you feel like that could be integrated into best practices, showing someone their worth? Well, because I feel it would relate to autonomy and also relate to choice and relate to feeling heard. Mm-hmm. Danielle, I see your hands up. Did you also want to contribute to that? I would just also say just, you know, everyone's their own individual person and they're all on their own path and respecting that and valuing, you know, their worth, their talents, their skills. And Robert, when you talked about, you know, there isn't one way to do something with the age group that I work with, highlighting that, you know, you don't have to go straight to college after high school. Maybe you want to work. Maybe you want to take a gap year and discover what it is. And I have a lot of these conversations with people with, figuring out what they want to do or even working um, with self-advocates who talk about their employment experience and they don't want to work in A, B, and C. They want to do E, F, G, or Z and all these different options and exploring that and exploring their possibilities, using their personality, using their skills to find out what is out there that interests them or finding worth in their current job that it may not be what they want to do, but it's a start. It's a beginning and it's an accomplishment. I mean, I think everyone has their first job and it's probably not what they're doing now. And it's probably not what they love to do. So remembering that, that life changes and we all take different steps to get to where we want to be. Yep. Meeting the person where they're at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Rosetta. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. Yes. I wanted to talk on the question you're talking about with dignity. From being a professional nurse, I did that type of work for five years before becoming a speaker. And the thing that I know what we did with our patients is to make sure that they have the dignity that they deserve. For example, if a person can put on their own shoe, 
can button their own shirt. Instead of us trying to get one's job done quicker by doing it for the patient, you allow them to do it because that gives them that self-dignity. They can see what they can do and they will feel better about themselves. And taking that and applying it to a person that's on the spectrum, if that child is not allowed to do some things that they can on their own, if the parent or the caretaker keeps interrupting and doing it, at some point in time, that dignity is going to start to decline. Even going into adulthood, if that person on the spectrum is being told, you know, you, you, you can't drive a car, I don't think you have the ability to pass a test. There are lots of people on the spectrum that does drive their own car. They do have a driver's license. And not only that, building their own credit. There are some caretakers and some parents that haven't allowed that child, that young person, to start building their own credit. And so it's in their head, I'm not going to ever have the dignity that I deserve to be in with society and have a normal life. So I think that to say normal or unlawful, it shouldn't even be in the, the category because if that person is allowed to attempt to do it, how would you know how far they can go? How would one know what they can achieve? And I believe that the impossible is possible. So giving that dignity, allowing that person to, to, to go forward and try, even if they fail, give them a chance to try it again. So I think that's sometimes, well, is a problem. And I saw on an, online the other day, which I thought was very hurtful to me personally, I'm not on the spectrum, but the love of my life, Thomas Allen is on the spectrum. It was a post, autism in the trash. This, this big dumpster, just take autism and throw it in the trash. So you're saying throw people in the trash? That is awful. And so autism awareness is very important. And yes, just to say something about dignity, that's a personal hurtful thing for me. And I like, I love the fact that we're all coming together in this round table to make a difference. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Rosetta. I love how you connected kind of that personal independence with dignity, which I think is often overlooked. And I think it's so important. So thank you. Also, another thing I'm, I'm hearing is a lot of us are talking about kind of like older individuals able to kind of communicate their wants and needs. Has anyone experienced in their practice or in their life, very young children where parents want something completely different? And how you go about communicating with them the importance of that client dignity and personal independence for young children. Go ahead, Brian. I, honestly, it's a, it's a niche area that I spend a lot of time in because I focus on the emotional regulation piece. And in fact, me and some friends also who are autistic are working on different approaches to focusing on providing supports by supporting the caregivers. And a big part of our support is focusing on helping the parent to be flexible enough to identify the child's values, to ask questions, to give that child some space. Now, boundaries are important. Safety is important. But sometimes we focus so much on safety and on boundaries that we forget that sometimes the boundaries are arbitrary. And sometimes there needs to be that freedom to take risks, to do dangerous things carefully. <laughs> Because children need to be able to learn. And sometimes we have to sc scrape our knee. Now, that doesn't mean we need to push the kid down the hill, right? <laughs> like, that's that's a different story. But, like, if a kid wants to try to dive into the pool and do a belly flop and figure out that, oof, that stings, then let them do it, right? And, and a lot of times, the what I focus on is, is helping the parents to see that. Now, interestingly... This particular phenomenon is not exclusive to autistic children. In fact, a lot of times when you see the conflict between parents and children as children are getting older, when they turn into teenagers, it's because the parents are too rigid in the, what their value set is. Because a lot of times the conflict between parent and child when the child is turning into a teenager is the parent has in their mind, as a parent, I'm supposed to be the caregiver. I'm the one who takes care of them. I come when they cry. They need to depend on me. But then when you, get be, you turn into a tween and a teen and a young adult, the child is gaining independence. And it's when the parent is too rigid and not being willing to be flexible with that necessary change is where you see the conflicts between parent and child happen the most. It just so happens that this happens more frequently with autistic children because parents look at themselves as being the ones that need to be there to rescue their child, to protect them, to help them. And that's not bad until it is, right? And it's not good until it is. It just is. It's a, it's a state of being. And when we can have that perspective of let's ask questions, 
let's be curious. Let's figure out what's going on instead of presuming or assuming or pushing our view on them. Isn't that exactly what all humans want to be treated with the the same dignity? And I know I'm talking a lot, but I'll, I'll wrap it up with this one. I used to say over and over again, this truism, and because I heard others say it, and I said it because they said it, if you met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. And it wasn't until recently that I realized, isn't that the most bass backwards, roundabout, long-winded way of saying we're people? <laughs> we're you've people. met one person, you've met one person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love that. One thing that kind of came to mind with talking about that, and I guess when we look about like the pediatric therapy, when you look at like ages two, right? And what what then becomes the focus a lot of the time. And I think that then becomes like those giving the individual skills to be autonomous or at least teaching. And so a lot of them do kind of orbit around self-care, taking care of themselves. A lot of behaviors or uh, skills, traits, whatever that would we would expect out of most children of that age, regardless of any diagnosis, identification, and what have you. But I think then shortly thereafter, like two, you know, you got two or three when you might be working on those is when you do start to see those values and interests kind of manifest themselves. And I've worked with plenty of, uh, as it was termed, rigid parents, where it's like, I'd like them to be MDs and rocket scientists. And it's like, while that is very well possible, is that what this individual wants? And I understand that gets difficult to kind of chart the path for a four-year-old. But at those times where I'm starting to see interest develop and whether it be it may not be very narrow interest like i like doing this but potentially the kid is very attracted to building with blocks and it's like there's a lot to be said there about life path again provided the individual wants to follow that path and there's motivation to continue following that but all that to say it's just it's a very interesting analysis when you do look at the the pediatric side or the, the very early stages of life because there is the rigidity and where where along the line do we start saying there's the values, there's the interest, these are the motivations that we want to start following. And I think if we continue to just push the age further and further back and try to identify where those start to kind of manifest or present, I think that's when you can start having the individual start guiding rather than just assuming like I've worked with plenty of young children who are, you know, six or seven and the family's like, they're going to do this, they're going to do this, they're going to do this. And I'm like, I got to tell you, I don't think they are very into that at all. And I'm not, I've been referring to myself lately as a born again behavior analyst for the sake of um, I'm kind of done writing plans and essentially coercing individuals to do what we assume is right and good. I mean, it's they're all subjective terms. Let's just let the person lead and live their best life, not what we think their best life is. I love that, TJ. Thank you. I can't tell you how many times I've seen like a treatment goal being like sitting for five minutes and coloring. And I'm like, <laughs> what if they don't want to color? <laughs> Like, let's find something they really want to do. So I think, yeah, yeah also, so, it's, it's, go ahead. Yeah, it reminds me of the classic trope of lining up toys being considered not playing correctly. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> Corbin. That's actually kind of funny because I found out the origins of the term functional play. The term functional play originally referred to playing for the toy with its intended function. Mm-hmm. That's where it came from. and. That's a type of play. And and in fact, autistics do that type of functional play quite naturally. If you just step back and let us do it, (laughs) instead of analyzing us all constantly, but it turned from playing with the toy for its intended function to this is functional. Therefore, if you're not doing it, there's something wrong with you. It goes right back to that pathologization. Yeah, it's basically saying there's only one way to do it. And if you do it another way, despite if it if you're enjoying it, it's wrong. Like that type well, of mentality. Mm-hmm. And, and that's about the other type of play, which is imaginative play, which is play with things outside of their intended values uh, or intent intentions. And in fact, it turns out that that type of play is very predictive of flexibility, of mental flexibility. In fact, yeah. one of my favorite TED Talks, Sir Ken Robinson's TED Talk, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, highly recommend it. God bless him. God rest his soul. I had a chance to meet the guy in person once. It was awesome. But like he talks about how schools are training creativity out of our kids. And when we're still focused on blocking creative play, instead of just being like, oh, hey, look, you can expand your, your play options. Here's some other ways to play. There's more than one right way. 
And we don't have to make you play this way to be able to meet a goal. We can just play. How about we have fun together? That's the entire point of play and explore and learn together. And that brings so much a great rapport, especially like that's the thing. As it was said, like imaginative play really helps with being meant flex flexible. And also, you know, it brings out more of the person's interests. It brings a lot more imagination and that actually can be very therapeutic than just having like a very very structured type of play yeah it's also unfortunate that on like behavioral assessments functional play is like a foundational skill to creative play which just doesn't even make sense (laughs) so sorry go ahead andrew i see your hand up yeah um and when we talk about the way that something is intended to be played with i mean who's to say that the person that initially created the toy wouldn't have imagined that there's other purposes for it or because there could be quite a few i mean we we think of pasta as something to eat but then again we also make ornaments with it <laughs> so i also really love stand up comedy and comedians that look at and do observational comedy on the silly way that some things are set up. And one of my favorites, his name is Mitch Hedberg, if some people have heard of him. He has quite a few famous jokes, but there's one that applies to this. It's like, I got a two-bedroom house, but it's up to me to decide how many bedrooms there are, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, you could really it could be one bedroom in an office. Bedroom. <laughs> this bedroom has an oven in it. This bedroom's in that guy's house. I mean, of course, there are obviously limits to what you can do with a toy to some extent, but, and there's some things you should not do with a toy. You should not throw it at people unless that's part of the game, but really you can play with it any way that you want. As long as it is functional to you, then it's beneficial to you. Going back around to the topics we discussed earlier. Yeah, I think, does anyone else have anything they'd like to share in this specific topic? Just very briefly, because this is a fun factoid I picked up from my administrative training. The WD-40 company, their entire company culture was built around creative uses of WD-40, a solvent, a solvent that was designed specifically to stop squeaks. And their their entire thing as a company is this. And I learned this from the book, Reframing Organizations, How Great Leaders Think, which is, by the way, a superb organizational behavior book. But that is... The thing is, creativity is being flexible, is being willing to try new things and realizing that, okay, the intended function doesn't necessarily mean it's always the best function. And some of the greatest discoveries that we've come across as humans have been because something that was intended for something else served that particular function. We wouldn't have margarine if it weren't for tank grease. Just saying. (laughs) I would also uh, remind everyone that there are a lot of uh, people with limited, no verbal skills in the autism community, nonverbal, and we may start guessing what they're good at. We think they're good at something or we think they'll like something. And if it's not the case, then that needs a little bit more reexamination because just because someone's not saying something doesn't mean they don't have anything to say. The more we figure, oh, that person can't talk, they're not good at, or they're not going to be good at, we are just writing them off and figuring they can't do something. And that discounts and really dismisses their strengths and capabilities. Same for those you might deem high functioning. They have needs and struggles too. So those need to be looked at carefully as we look at where our people are. Absolutely. And that kind of like leads me into my last thing, because I kind of wanted to close out with everyone just giving like one way that they think that there could be more neurodiversity affirming practices. I just want anyone who's listening to recognize like this can be a way to change in a positive direction. And then we'll close out and say our goodbyes. So the question kind of is, is just what can you leave someone listening to this, like a way to have better neurodiversity affirming practices? The biggest thing is learning how to be a values detective, learning how to ask those questions that get you to identify what matters to that person. And there's so many different ways that we can look and tell somebody's values. It takes work, it takes effort, it takes time. But when you identify values, that's a pivotal point. A lot of times I hear people saying, well, you know, control is not a function of behavior, but they're so controlling. Maybe because they value having control over their environment (laughs) and you should give them that choice instead of trying to make them have to take it from you over and over again. 
instead of being an impediment in their environment, being appetitive, meaning making them want to be around you. And it all goes back to those values and, and being a detective. And sometimes the best way to identify values is to look at what they're moving away from. Because on the opposite of that is values, usually, almost always. But it's also like just being willing to step back, let them take the helm because it's their helm. It's not yours to take to begin with. So stop being a conqueror, a colonizer, or whatever you want to insert name-wise in their life. Stop being that. Stop thinking that you have to save them and step back because it's not yours to control. It's theirs to control. You can guide, you can help, you can protect. But at the end of the day, I hate the term stakeholder because that has so much loaded stuff in it. The only person who has a stake in my life is me because it's mine. I have team members, but I'm the rights holder for my rights. And my learners are the rights holders for their rights. And my job is their team member, team yang, team yang, team whoever it is that I'm supporting. My job is to come in and back them up. And yes, guide and support and protect, but not block and say, no, you can't. Instead say, well, that could hurt somebody else, but what are some ways we could be creative with this? What are some ways that we can work around that? And the way I like to describe boundaries is boundaries are like a minefield. Like if you run into that minefield, you could get hurt. Others could get hurt. But when I'm holding boundaries, I don't say, no, you can't cross this line, period. Never. We will die on this line. I say, hey, that's a dangerous spot. And that's something we can't go. But hey, look at all this area, 360 degrees in this direction. Sorry, 180 degrees in this direction, presuming it's a straight line on the boundary. Or it could be the thing that's that led over to the boundary crossing, like a ball getting kicked into the proverbial minefield. That ball matters to them. Okay, so maybe we call the minesweeper squad. So instead of saying, no, we can't cross into it, we say, hey, we got a call for extra support and we're going to figure this out. Because there's no one answer that's right. I feel like there's a little bit of a mic drop. Thank you, Brian. (laughs) A couple of uh, visuals I'm going to remember from that one. So similarly to Brian's first maxim to find the person's values before proceeding, it's also important for us to know who that person is in the, at the core, at their core and who we can, what, to what we can reasonably determine that they are. And to look for signs that the way that the person's presenting themselves as possibly a mask or possibly true or a mixture thereof, because I don't think any one of us is perfectly authentic all of the time. Um, if we were, that would be pretty incredible. But I don't think any of us really get even close to that in the, the way that we would like to, as much as it's held to be our ideal. And there's some situations where it's not benefiting us. And if we are able to determine where those are and perhaps the function of that behavior, bringing back the functional aspect of it, masking is going to serve a function for everybody for either for negative consequence that has occurred to them in the past or that they fear occurring in the future. And if we're able to determine whether somebody is authentic or the identity that they've constructed of any type is a mask of some kind and why that is there, we are then able to empower them to become more fully themselves. Once we are able to do that, we can break down barriers to inclusion and allow for somebody to have autonomy, allow for them to have dignity, and allow for them to have identity. Amazing. You wrapped that up perfectly. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. Corbin? And I, I would, yeah, I would say struggle is such a part of life for everybody. And I think um, when you realize how struggle is a part of life, you then will learn not to not to look down or pretend to be um, the saviors to somebody else. Because, you know, I can look like a success story all I want. You know, I drive a 2021 model car. I own my house and, you know, I uh, getting this new experience with skill court and everything. But, you know, I've um, been working at my full time job for more than two years, so long as I've been at a year-round non-seasonal job at a full-time rate. And, you know, it's been a rotating 12-hour manufacturing shift at, you know, a uh, you know large tire manufacturer. 
And for some reason, I realized it was getting harder. And then somehow, you know, when I'm looking at my path into teaching, which is something that I just sort of discovered that this is something that I need to be doing. I've been fitting in um, substitute teaching everything. And, you know, know, I could pretend to have it all together. But right now, it's like the simple stuff is so hard. Like, I can barely put a dish into a dishwasher. And if, if it's a not even a clean dishwasher, you know, and that that's where I am right now. You know, I look great, but I'm just find myself struggling with a lot of the basics. And, you know, you almost wouldn't know that if I'm going, going out. So. Thank you for sharing Corbin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to hear about your path into teaching. That's really exciting. Tom and Rosetta, anything out you'd like to close with? Uh, I'll close with reminding everyone that each and every one of us is unique. And I believe each and every one of us is capable of living a life that we want to live. And yes, we will need help along the way and making sure that everyone's on the same page and that we're making it about the person. And that way that person can find somewhere that they shine and succeed and make something of themselves to ultimately make the world a better place. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I would say to be patient, understanding, and if you need help, please get it. And don't be afraid to ask questions. And that way everyone can be on the same page and have those difficult conversations. Thank you. Well, I just want to say this was an amazing roundtable. You made it so easy for me to facilitate. So thank you. I had so much fun. I was nervous going into it, but uh, this was excellent. So just wanted to wrap up by saying thank you. All right. Y'all have a wonderful afternoon. I hope to see you at the next roundtable. Okay. Thank you so much, Corey. did amazing. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. What were some of your takeaways from today's episode? Share your ideas about neurodiversity affirming practices over in our online Global Autism community. Are you a self-advocate wanting to share your story and educate others? Or a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, You can join our online Global Autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.